News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. In the United States and in Texas, they continue to mourn the the loss of at least 19 children and two teachers killed at an elementary school. More is also being learned about how it all happened. So let's go now to Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent who is in Uvalde, Texas this morning. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. What are we learning about the investigation at this point? What is new? Look, the investigation is ongoing, uh, and law enforcement has said that this is likely going to take some time because they're trying to retrace the steps of a suspect who is now dead. Social media is playing a significant role here because there are messages that are being unearthed and brought to the public light, private messages that the suspect was sharing uh, with people from around the world, uh, talking about uh, or, or at least alluding to the fact that there was going to be some kind of incident involving harm to the community members here uh, in Uvalde. But uh, they're, they're trying to piece together the pieces here to try and figure out Uh, a motive because at the end of the day this was a local high school student that according to uh, the reporting was bullied growing up may have had some mental health challenges but at the end of the day there are just so many questions as to why he walked into an elementary school barricaded himself into a classroom and simply opened fire can we talk a little bit about how the community is doing here too and i know there is some frustration as well i've seen stories about how community members wanted to rush into the school as it was happening um, there were concerns about the police not moving fast enough. How is the community doing? I mean, look, this is a, this is a community that's broken. Um, there are there are streams of people walking up and down uh, the street towards Rob Elementary, which is still behind police tape, uh, bringing flowers, bringing uh, mementos and balloons and cards. And there's just a, there is a growing memorial outside of the school, but there is a growing sense of anger and frustration as to why this took place in the first place. Uh, and you're right, there there are uh, there is reporting out there from the AP and from the Washington Post that family members wanted to rush into the school and police were stopping them. There was one uh, law enforcement officer who said, look, I have children as well, but we have to remember that in these situations, it's volatile and we can't just have the community running in during an active shooting uh, investigation. But that begs the other question, why was this able to go on for almost an hour before a a Border Patrol agent happened to show up and then neutralized and took down um, the suspect? There's a lot of questions here and, and there's a lot of grief and a lot of unknowns for these families. Right, and of course, and amidst all of this, the whole gun control debate continues too. Uh, and boy, is that one, it, it feels different this time, that debate, Reggie. Well, I mean, look, gun rights legislation in the United States uh, is is difficult to deal with at the absolute best of times because you have two polar opposite views on the same subject. Democrats are saying, look, we need common sense gun laws around the country. That is what's going to stop this from happening again. That is going to stop Uvalde from having to become a shoulder for the next town when this happens down the road. Republicans are saying, look, this is not a gun issue. This is not a gun ownership issue or a Second Amendment issue. This is an issue about mental health. This is an issue uh, that that extends beyond the politics of guns, and that's why it becomes difficult to do anything. There is legislation that's been passed in the U.S. House that Republicans in the Senate are blocking from moving forward because politics goes against what they believe when it comes to gun rights, but it doesn't go along with the broad American public. Ninety percent of Americans want to see better background checks. 
the broad uh, majority in America want more strict gun controls. But because the NRA backs so many Republicans and Republican candidates, Republicans simply aren't going to move. That is why Democrats are trying to make this a kitchen table topic during the midterms. Okay, and I understand there isn't, is there not an NRA kind of convention happening in Texas this week? And it is something that is rattling the nerves and is creating a seething moment for Democrats, including Beto O'Rourke, former presidential candidate, and the Democratic candidate trying to unseat Greg Abbott here in Texas. We talked to him last night, and he is frustrated and and, 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 and angry at the fact that the NRA is holding this uh, this conference on Friday in Houston, four hours from here in Uvalde, where Greg Abbott is expected to speak, along with Ted Cruz and former President Donald Trump. There's a lot of frustration in this state right now that on the heels of this mass shooting, the fourth or fifth mass shooting under under Greg Abbott, um, that, that this is going to be taking place just a couple of hours away. There's a lot of questions here, and again, very few answers. All right, thanks so much for that, Reggie. Thank you. It's Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent, who today is in Uvalde, Texas, reporting on the situation down there. And of course, we'll have the latest for you ongoing as the story develops. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, yesterday we got the business case, apparently, for why the government wants to build a brand new and very, very expensive Royal BC Museum. But were all the answers in there? Well, we're going to talk about that. The price tag and all of that is also coming up with Vaughn Palmer. But right now we're checking in with our contributor, Raji Salha, who I know, Raji, you were watching the whole thing, right? Yes, I was. I was really interested, uh, not only in the nuts and bolts of what was going to be in this business case, but I was also curious about how the province was going to sell this to Simi, what is a very, very skeptical public. Uh, I see people not not very divided on this issue. I'm hearing a lot of folks say, and from you know all political stripes, saying, uh, we don't want this, not at least not right now. And what they tried to do in the press conference was set up the multiple reasons for wanting or even needing a new institution. And they were focusing at first, I felt, a lot on the message of safety. That, I think, was a PR move because they're yeah. doing that, you know, for the sake of the parents who send their kids on these school trips there. Oh, come on, right? <laughs> Oh, totally. They're doing this to gain voter favor, right? But it wasn't a smart PR move because as soon as you start talking about safety, that point gets quickly drowned out by people who go, uh, you want to talk safety? Let's talk about how our schools need new exactly. building upgrades yeah. or how our hospitals are falling apart. You talk to people who work in the Victoria Hospital and they have major asbestos issues there to the point where, and I've seen pictures of this, where uh, there are holes in parts of the flooring that are covered up with duct tape because of asbestos. Um, and there are, you know, walls that need replacing in that hospital. There are, there are major issues with other important buildings. So one, at one point in the press conference I found this really interesting was a reporter asked what the real priority here is. Like, why aren't we hearing it very clearly from the government? And then Mark emphasized safety again, but then Simi, she laid out a different point. And this was the argument that cultivating a state-of-the-art facility was to properly house and preserve the rich history of BC as a step towards truth and reconciliation. 
uh, one um, reporter from the Globe and Mail said, oh, uh, in an effort to decolonize, and Mark said, no, don't put words in my mouth. That's not what I said. Uh, it's an effort towards truth and reconciliation. And that part, you know, I think is interesting because, Simi, in the last year, we have been talking more about truth and reconciliation than we ever have. We've talked about the calls to action, and we have been really big on words in our province, but slow on action. And so this, the argument is that this new museum would be the way to properly pay homage to our shared BC history, to represent Indigenous histories, and that that is a huge step in the right direction. Later on in the show, I'm going to get into the money issues, and I'm sure you'll get into that with Vaughn Palmer too, but I talked to a architect here in BC. He's an award-winning one. He's worked on cultural institutions. Uh, he's being sent to the Venice Biennale to represent Canada. And he said these cultural institutions are super important and that every major city around the world has one that they treat as like a gem. So the, the fact that we need to rebuild one is a question of when. So it needs to be done, but when. So here's Matthew Souls on this. It's not at all something that is frivolous and only a kind of icing on a cake. It's actually integral to the well-being of an individual and a well-being of society, that there are beautiful cultural institutions that represent our values and allow us to share in positive experiences together. And if you think about um, all the cultures of the world, all the cultures of the world, to my knowledge, have always had cultural buildings, cultural constructs that allow the members of that cultural group to come together and be with each other in a positive, enlightening manner. Always, throughout human history, everywhere, every continent, you know, Africa to China to Europe, I mean, pick your location always great cultural buildings. And I think, you know, it's it's vital that, uh, that we in British Columbia make the investments in uh, providing these, these wonderful assets for our citizens. Okay, I can appreciate that argument, Raji, but does the investment have to be the most expensive museum in all of Canada? Yeah, I, w- I want to get into that with you uh, in our next segment because I do talk to Matthew Souls, the architect, about that. But he pointed out to me, you look at London, New York, Paris, Toronto. Does Vancouver deserve a first-class museum? Or not Vancouver, but BC deserve a first-class museum? I think it does. I think we should. I think uh, Victoria, representing all of BC, is a city of that stature. And we are a place in the world that's considered one of the best places to live. So we need to represent that fact to the world, but also to ourselves. And you do this through cultural institutions. And I think that um, that aspect was lost on people. The reason it was lost on people during this press conference was because of that price tag. That price tag, Simi, is unprecedented, not just in our province, but in our country. I know. And and this is, again, the thing that gets me about this is because like, I love a good museum. Uh, I love going to museums. I love them if I travel. So I'm all about that. But, (laughs) and this is a very big but, uh, you have to read the room, right? When you're going to do a big project like this. And that's what I feel like didn't happen here because there's a time and place to build these things 
this is not the time and place to build this one, especially when you can't make a persuasive enough argument yeah. to me. If you can't get everybody in the tourism industry on side, that's the other thing I don't understand is why not have all your partners who support you to be there, come out and say, you know, we want to do this. This is going to be great for tourism. Well, when and all, see me, all of that is lacking. Yeah, there's been support, for example, for other art galleries to take their baby steps and, and progress towards getting a new building. But let's talk about baby steps. Vancouver Art Gallery has been waiting for a yeah. new home since before 2008 when uh, Gordon Campbell announced $50 million for that. Now, that still didn't get the art gallery made. You know, the, that art gallery is looking for another $50 million from the province. It's yeah. not going to happen anytime soon. And then we have seen other projects like this in BC for art galleries and museums inch forward so slowly. But with this project, it was Why like, all in? boom, yeah. and people got whiplash from how much the price tag was. Exactly. All right, Roger, we're going to talk more about that with you coming up. Thanks. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for our series here on 980 CKNW that is called Capacity Crisis, taking a look at BC's healthcare system, where we're trying to explore the direct impact of this crisis on different groups, on different individuals, on all of you out there, everyday British Columbians. And the biggest concerns that we have heard and continue to hear and have over the time that we've been talking about this is access access to our system, whether it's a family doctor shortage or any kind of staff shortage, you're waiting for a referral, just everything that is going on out there that prevents you from getting the care that you need. So we thought, let's go to the top to ask these questions. Joining us now is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Thank you for being back with us. Hey, good morning, Sibby. And what do you think when you hear all these stories, all these concerns from people saying, listen, I can't, I can't get to my doctor. I can't get to a doctor. Listen, I, I talk to people about these issues every single day, uh, Sydney. So I'm, well, I hear the concerns, perhaps in advance of you hearing the concerns and understand them. I just just want to put a little bit of context there, and a little bit of positive news to start with, uh, with respect to key issues like access to surgeries. We've gone from the bottom of the list in Canada to the top of the list, for example, in orthopedic surgeries, number one in Canada, in key measures of wait times. And this is important. We've done that by a systematic plan, surgical renewal, which has meant hiring 300 surgical nurses, hiring anesthesiologists, hiring um, uh, medical device processors who are critical to surgeries. The wait list for surgeries is less than it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And that's exceptional work, not by me, but by our healthcare teams. Equally, when you are seeking a, a diagnostic exam, for example, an MRI, we were worst in Canada. When I became Minister of Health, we did 175,000 MRI exams in 2017. We've gone up to 296,000. When you think of the work that goes into each one of those, that's a massive impact, and it has reduced significant wait times in a significant area of care. We've hired in a pandemic when it's, there are challenging labor issues, 30,000 more people to support our healthcare system. So there are real challenges, and those challenges exist in part because of the COVID-19 pandemic, which still really affects our healthcare system. It hasn't really changed that much for our healthcare system in the last month or so, except that it's one month longer, the pandemic. And obviously our healthcare teams who have given it their all for two years at a maximum of 100% plus are still having to give that. And that has its impact over time. So I, I think um, I absolutely hear the concerns. And I think in some important areas we're responding to them by providing better and more access 
And in other areas, we've got work to do. I know you're a big believer in urgent care primary centers, but are they working the way that you had intended and given that they're not fully staffed? We hear reports about how they're they're funded for dozens of doctors, but in many cases have very few. Well, in fact, um, they're in our urgent primary care centers. They're about now 330 people staffing them across the province. Our 20, that's full-time FTEs, right? It's not two part-time jobs. Really. It's full-time. So two, two half-time would be one in that circumstance. And um, we've done 1.3 million in-person visits. And so when you ask, have they been effective? I think the answer is, especially during the pandemic, yes. Because everyone out there knows this. We moved from uh, overwhelmingly in-person service of primary care to a largely virtual service in March and April of 2020 because of the pandemic. We responded quickly, and that was important, and we needed to do that to both support our primary care system and to keep getting people access to care. But the the additional 1.3 million in-person visits have made a difference. But I just want to put it in context. There are 27 urgent and primary care centers. There are 2,000 primary care clinics in the province. So they're, uh, they're an important response, but they're not our most important response. Our most important response has been something called our primary care network effort, which has been done in in cooperation with divisions of family practice, basically family doctors in the community. And we have 59 of those now. We've hired more than 1,000 people, full-time FTEs, uh, full-time equivalents, we call that full-time jobs, in those positions. And those support the system. But here's what else is happening, and it's absolutely clear. We have an aging population and an increase in complexity of care. We've spent two years now where our system's been largely virtual. And there are real challenges in terms of recruitment and retention of family practice doctors. And so that's why we're taking the efforts we're taking now and working with family practice doctors to try and solve some of those impediments so that the system continues to be there for people in the future. Can you give us an idea then of of what is happening behind the scenes with that relationship with family doctors to encourage them to to have them feel less stressed, less overworked, to get more of them back into practice? Well, there's two sets of issues, right? And they're different for different doctors. But but, um, we're working with people, uh, with uh, primary care doctors of the doctors of BC and others to help resolve those problems. But here's a couple of the problems. The first is recruitment. We have a system, and this is the detail of it, but it's important, uh, a largely fee-for-service system in BC. So 80% of our billings are fee-for-service, and more than two-thirds of our doctors get most of their income from fee-for-service, right? And, for example, Ontario, it's about half of that. This is by way of comparison, and this has been in our system for a long time, right? And uh, young doctors don't like that business model very much. Some doctors have been around for a while, don't like the business model, don't think it works for them anymore. But a lot of young doctors aren't coming into longitudinal primary care because they don't like the uh, like that as an approach. Mm-hmm. They don't want to become businessmen people, they want to practice medicine. And that's a real difference. So we've got to, in our recruitment efforts, we've got to make changes to the way the system runs to better um, recruit young doctors because we need new doctors in the system to replace those who at any time would be retiring and add people to our system. We have the largest family practice met residency program in the country. But a lot of people don't want to go to what I call longitudinal primary care, which is primary care in the community uh, led by family physicians principally and others, of course. And so we've got to deal with recruitment and we've got to work with our resident doctors, for example, and younger doctors to make sure that they come in 
to uh, to longitudinal primary care. And then we've got to retain doctors because the circumstances have changed. If you, uh, Sydney, are getting paid and your business model depends on seeing five or six patients an hour, and those patients suddenly become more complex, it becomes more difficult to see five or six patients an hour, and that affects your whole business model. And we have, I don't think, we have a very decentralized system right now, fee-for-service uh, primary pr- uh, care is quite decentralized, and we don't respond well, for example, when a doctor is about to retire. It becomes very, very stressful for patients, and you're hearing this and people who are calling yeah. into your show. Okay, so are we working on that? Absolutely. All of those problems on retention, on recruitment, we've got to continue to build out team-based care. And I'll, can I, I'll give you just one practical example of how our primary care networks are helpful. We've added about 176 people who work with local divisions of family practice and local family practice doctors to provide mental health and addictions services, right? This is important for family doctors in terms of the work they do because doctors will tell you when you talk to them, uh, family physicians will tell you how challenging it sometimes is when they effectively diagnose a patient and then can't refer them anywhere or have to spend a lot of time finding uh, supports or uh, right. other other care for those people. So that's an addition. And that didn't come because I said so. It came because those were the recommendations that had come forward from family physicians. So we have to continue to build out family practice mm-hmm. uh, uh, and team-based care because that's important. Now, all the range of people who provide primary care working to the full extent of their skills. We've got to do a better job retaining family practice doctors and hearing them when they say the business model isn't working for them. And thirdly, we've got to do a better job of recruitment because we're going to need a new generation of uh, longitudinal family physicians who are really the heart and the foundation of our primary care system. Well, we really do. And I look forward to talking to you more about that. So thank you very much for your time. Hey, right. Anytime. Take care, Simi. You too. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, talking about the work that is being done to fix our family doctor problem. And I know we will have more conversations on that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the business case for a new Royal BC Museum is now out there. Well, most of it anyway, what hasn't been redacted is out there. Is it convincing? Is it a good enough argument to convince people that spending almost a billion dollars in the current economic climate is a good idea? That's what we are going to talk to our next guest about. It is Melanie Mark, BC's Minister for Tourism, Art, Culture and Sport. Thank you very much for being here. Hi, good morning, Simi. Okay, let's talk about the business case. Uh, First off, when I was reading through it, I I said, nowhere in there did I see a why. Why why move forward with this project now? Well, the building as we know it is at seismic risk. It's beyond its useful life. Uh, We've made it clear through the business case that if there was an earthquake or a flood, that we would be risking our collective history being wiped out. Um, It doesn't meet accessibility standards. It doesn't meet international standards for HVAC um, standards so that we curate our collections. 1% of our collections are on display because it's just not functional. There are a number of reasons that we need to build a new museum. It's just beyond its useful life. In 2008, the former government was made aware that there was risk to the building. And when we formed government, we went to work quickly on exploring what options we could take um, to to revitalize or repair or build a new museum. And our business case reveals that the best way forward, the most cost-effective way forward, is to build a new museum. 
But why is this building a higher priority than schools that aren't seismically safe or hospitals that aren't seismically safe? Schools are important to us. Hospitals are important to us. They're all a part of our capital plan. Uh, Government has been working very ambitiously and aggressively to update and seismically update schools and build new hospitals. The former government did the work. We're continuing to do that work. Just to give you some context, in 2012 to 2017, $544 million was invested in seismic upgrades for schools. Between 2017, when reformed government, to 2022, $1.2 billion has been invested in seismic upgrades to school. We are doing both. I had explained in our briefing yesterday that this is the public museum. It houses and stores our collective and shared history. And with a risk, it could be wiped out. And that is a decision that we've made as a government, the risk that we're not going to take. But we are committed to doing everything we can for British Columbians, for people to go to safe schools, safe hospitals, and invest in capital projects. Those capital projects are a public asset. And people don't often pay attention to buildings and how important they are, but we are doing that work. It's important for our government to leave positive legacies for the next generation. But is this the right time, given the squeeze that we all have on our budgets these days, is this the right time to build what is clearly, from your budget, the most expensive museum in Canadian in Canada? Well, the work started over a decade and a half ago. Uh, the last five years, the public service has been working diligently to look at the best way forward, the most cost-effective way forward, and the business case informs us that we must do this work. We can't risk losing our collective history. Two floors of the building are below sea level. The Douglas Treaties, Emily Carr's collection, there are 7 million artifacts behind the walls of the museum. There are 27 kilometers worth of archives behind the museum. That is our shared and collective history that informs our way forward, it informs how we look at climate action, how we address reconciliation. It's an important institution. I recognize that British Columbians are faced with challenges right now, and my colleagues are working hard to invest in housing, invest in childcare, invest in hospitals, invest in the people that work in those institutions. We are doing both. But we cannot risk delaying this project because it will just cost more, if not now. The question people ask me all the time is, if not now, then when? The former government didn't do it back in 2008. We're in 2022. We know more about the importance of museums today and how they are vessels for sharing about our history and understanding where we came from. I think I have a duty as the minister to inform British Columbians about art, culture, and museum and our history. And this building and this institution is going to be an opportunity for more British Columbians to have an understanding and more access to the, the People's Museum, as, as I call it. Okay, well, let's talk about the process then that is in, outlaid, laid, laid out in the business plan. One, uh, we didn't get enough information about what the concerns were about the business cases. That part was all blacked out. And also, any ideas about design, which I think would actually be helpful here so people can see what we're all paying for, uh, was also blacked out. Why not provide that information? Well, this is the first public release of a a business case for a vertical infrastructure project. Our government's committed to transparency. We want British Columbians to know um, what informed the business case, why we we chose between five options, six options. This is the best and most cost-effective way forward. 
the business case, ten, less than 10% was redacted, and that was to protect procurement so that we get the best design possible for the new building. There are some must-haves. We must have space for the Indigenous collections. It must be seismically safe. It must address accessibility standards. It will be built with mass timber. All of those, those components are foundational to the museum, but we have a risk of putting out indicative designs because we won't get the best, best ideas from architects that are going to give us the most innovative options for a world-class museum. We did release um, some images, but again, those images don't inform what the, what the possibilities are. That's where there's room for engagements from British Columbians, so that more British Columbians can tell us, starting in the fall, what does a reimagined museum look like within the walls of the new museum? Uh, why not then start moving things out and leave the museum open for the time being? Like, why the rush to close it? Well, we're working as quickly as possible. As I had mentioned, there's 7 million artifacts. There are 27 kilometers worth of archives that need to be carefully packed and moved. It's a staged process. That needs to be moved to a lease space, which will, some of the the collections and archives will move to the Research and Collections Building in Colwood, which is going to open in 2025. But we need to also carefully deal with the material of, of hazardous abatement. There is asbestos behind the walls. There's lead. It's dangerous. And we need to carefully um, make sure that we move the fragile archives and then get ready for demolition so that we can quickly move towards building a new state-of-the-art museum. So It's a staged process. It's very, very complex, but we're trying to do it as effectively and efficiently as possible so, so that people can revisit the new museum in Victoria. So given all the things that you have heard, all the concerns that you've heard from people, and listen, a lot of people support the idea of a new museum. It's the cost and the way it was done that I think a lot of us have some concerns about. But given everything, everything that's happened the last couple of weeks, do you still think this was the right way to go about this? I I will say that uh, when we made the announcement on Friday the 13th, uh, it didn't land as I had hoped. Um, we wanted to come forward to the public about what government considered, what the public service has been working on for the last five years about what the, what we have to consider around a new revitalized or new museum. I believe that we have an opportunity to build a world-class museum that is going to be an educational facility that is going to advance reconciliation, that is going to invite world-class exhibitions to the people's museum and Right now, we have an opportunity to talk about the importance of museums. I, I firmly believe that we have a duty to protect our collective history. As, and I say that because the more we learn about what are behind those walls, it helps inform where we've been and where we're going. And we, if we don't do anything now, then when? And who will be to blame if action isn't taken to protect our collective history? Minister Mark, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Sunny. Have a great day. You too. That's Melanie Mark, BC's Minister for Tourism, Art, Culture and Sport, talking about the plans for the new museum. And I know you probably want to weigh in on this, so absolutely, please do. Simi at cknw.com. Are you convinced by the business plan? Are you convinced by the idea that we need this? Or do you think still not the time to do this, not the time to spend this kind of money? You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Lots of you are weighing in with your thoughts on this new Royal BC Museum, particularly after you heard the minister responsible, Melanie Mark, make her argument for it about half an hour ago on the show. Keep the comments coming. One person we also heard from as a result of having the minister on the show is actually the opposition leader. BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon uh, called in because he had concerns, he said, when he was hearing what the minister had to say. And remember, the BC Liberals have pledged to cancel this project if they are elected in the next election. So why would you allow that to happen? Are you still planning on going ahead about that? Well, here's some of what Kevin Falcon had to say. So I know you've said that you would cancel this project if the BC Liberals win the next election, but does that solve the the problem of what to do about a museum that still does need some upgrades? Like, what would you do? Well, I would do the upgrades. I think doing the upgrades makes a lot of sense. You know, it's interesting to me that only a few short years ago, they had a $150 million budget for upgrading the building, which is what I think most people could support. Suddenly they're trying to say, oh, well, actually, that would cost more than building a brand new building. That is preposterous. I have been involved in capital projects in the billions of dollars, both in the private sector and in the public sector, and that's just an indefensible position. Uh, the fact of the matter is that building is only 54 years old, we could absolutely seismically upgrade that building and fix up the building, deal with the issues that they have to deal with without having to go through this ridiculous exercise of, you know, uh, bureaucrats secretly putting together plans in the dark with the public knowing nothing about it, announcing it on Friday the 13th, you know, spot the irony there, and then, you know, uh, this complete disaster of a public reaction for something that is important to most of us. We do want to have a great provincial museum. But the way they're going about this and the tone-deaf approach they're taking in terms of all the other needs out there just doesn't cut it. All right, that is BC Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon weighing in. It raises the question, too, then why so much? Why almost a billion dollars? You know, we are anticipating cost overruns, too, to build a museum. Well, what do the experts say about that? So we thought, let's check in with our contributor, Raji Sohal, who's been actually talking to some experts in this field. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, we've heard from the government. We heard from the opposition. I did talk to an architect, not about upgrades, because, you know, as I understand it, um, contrary to what to Mr. Falcon was saying there, upgrades are rugged for museums and galleries. Uh, you know, these are signature landmark buildings. They have to really wow people. So they can't just be a basic uh, cube. They require a ton. But Simi, cities achieve that goal sometimes at the 200 million mark or really outstanding, maybe at the 500 million mark. The closer we get to a billion, I think the more nervous British Columbians are getting about this. A lot of people want that new building, I think, but what they don't want is they don't want it now and they don't want it for this huge amount. And I talked to Matthew Souls. He's an architect. Uh, He's also a UBC professor in architecture. He said that museums are one of the most complicated projects for architects. All I know about the budget is that, uh, you know, very large dollar amount. It's that close to $800 million amount strikes me as a very large amount of money. Um, And I'm very curious to learn about, uh, you know, the rationale and logic for, and their, their budget in closer detail to see how they've arrived at that amount. So it gives me some whiplash as well. Um, it seems very high and, I, and I'd like to understand why it's so high. Maybe there's a very good reason for it being so high. Um, maybe there's not some great reasons. And, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see until we have greater details. But 
I mean, what we do know is that, um, you know, to make a great facility um, requires a significant, significant expenditure in terms of materials, construction labor, and design labor. Um, and these things, the, you know, if you look at the great facilities around the world that, that really stand out and um, capture the pride of the citizens in that place and are, 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 are something that attracts visitors from around the world, they are um, institutions that um, have a very um, sophisticated and thoughtful deployment of material aesthetics and architectural form and have incredibly high standards of functionality. All of those things cost a lot of money to achieve. Now, you know, it sh is it going to cost, should it cost $500 million or $800 million or $400 million? I don't have enough detail to, to, to know. Um, but, but, you know, to design a, a, a beautiful building that British Columbians are attractive or are proud of, it no doubt is going to cost a significant amount of money. Yeah, Simi, I think at this point, although the government is telling us they're being transparent, they are not. They should stop cloaking the details and tell British Columbians what the, the literal rundown is of yeah. that business plan. People want to know the details. Now, my feeling always was with this is that if you want people to buy in, you've got to show them what they're paying for, that they should have done the design process first so you can show people this is what how amazing this is going to look. And I think you might have been able to persuade some people at that point that, hey, this is good. You might have been able to get the tourism people on board, but it's just all of it mystery. Yeah, it's a mystery. And it was placed upon people really suddenly. And not just people, I mean, we're paying for this, right? Taxpayers. And I do think a lot of people actually do want a new museum. The question, though, is how special is it going to be? Let's show show us what that is. And also, do we really need to be spending this amount on it and the, the third part. Yeah, and that's the kicker about that too. And yes, schools and hospitals are being slowly upgraded, uh, but man, we've waited decades to have that happen here too. So that's the thing. It's people who love museums, we support, we love the idea of a new museum, but just is this the right time to spend that amount of money? I don't think people are on board with that despite all of this new information. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Amy. So Raji Sohal there talking to an architect and UBC professor about the process too, about building a new museum. It is undoubtedly an expensive endeavor. And while many people would say, sure, yeah, great idea for tourists. And, and yes, we, we need a new museum. But do we need a museum that costs that much money right now? I'd have to say, well, 100% of all the emails I have gotten, the response from you today has been, not now, not the right time for this project. Keep your comments coming, simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. And once again for our series here on 980 CKNW called Capacity Crisis, BC's healthcare system. And this is where we explore the impact of the crisis on all sorts of groups and individuals and you out there. That is everyday British Columbians. And here's the thing. We've talked about family doctors. We've talked about all the different ways in which this capacity crisis is hitting people. Well, when was the last time you tried to make an appointment at the dentist? you probably even had some issues with that. Might have taken you quite a while to get into your dentist. And you know what? 
There's a very good reason why. Joining us now to talk more about that is our guest, Andrea Burton, who's the CEO of the BC Dental Hygienist Association. Good morning, Andrea. Hi, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So tell me what's going on. Are we actually having a shortage in the dental industry too? We are. So um, I'm actually the CEO of the BC Dental Hygienist Association and the CDA Alliance, so the Certified Dental Assistant Alliance. And we're seeing shortages in both. I would say sort of moderate shortages in dental hygienists. But if you look at our national job board, you'll see that Ontario and BC have the same number of vacancies for dental hygienists, which with a population so much greater, you would think Ontario would have many more. So we're at a really high end for dental hygienists. And for certified dental assistants, we are we are really short. And if you talk to almost any dentist in the province, they will say that they're struggling to keep CDAs and to ensure that they have that particular professional in their office. So, Andrew, what happened? Is this something that happened during the pandemic? Was it over time, like, or or did people just not are not enough people being trained? I think it's it was starting to be a challenge before the pandemic. The pandemic has certainly exasperated it, and I think it's exacerbated it. I think that's true of a lot of health professions right now. Um, I I think there are a lot of people who are really thinking about whether they want to be in health, and you've probably heard that from a bunch of the other professions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we we had oral health, the dental dental offices were shut down for a period of time, uh, and certainly that during that period of time, people started to look, obviously, for other options and to think about, you know, what I need to do for my future. But we also know that um, there's lots of concerns around workplace health and mental stress. Um, most dental hygienists and CDAs working in dental offices don't have any benefits, uh, which is challenging for them. Um, a lot of people like flexible hours, and with the pandemic, work from home options are obviously you can't work from home if you're a CDA right. or a dental hygienist. So I think that there's a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of coming at a time when we're actually looking at this national dental plan and thinking, oh, how are we going to staff this if we have an influx of new patients? Right. So there must be a lot of job postings out there right now in those positions. There are a lot of job postings out there right now and a lot of um, interesting, sometimes creative, sometimes a little scary ideas about how we can possibly get more in the system. You know, it, it makes sense to educate more, but it's not a, something you could snap your fingers and do. Programs have limited capacity, limited number of seats, limited funding from the Ministry of Advanced Education. You know, most instructors don't want to work 24-7. Uh, so, you know, the idea of having the programs run overnight is probably not feasible. But, I mean, we really are at this point where people are, are coming up with all sort of wacky options of how do we actually get more people in the system. All right. Well, I have to ask, Andrea, what are some of those wacky options then? Well, like I said, the, the idea had I have heard of, well, can't you just run them overnight? Um, can you not just run the courses at different hours? So uh, most instructors, of course, we still have to have instructors and they don't want to work crazy hours. Uh, we have people asking if we can get rid of school, um, summer, summer vacation for people who are on that system. There's been lots of conversation about moving to all online and there are some online programs that are supportive but honestly you know it's very hard in oral health to train someone fully online you, you really you need to have hands-on well, yeah. you need to have clinical experience and so you know we we look are looking at all the options but there there needs to be a real strategic approach to how we're actually going to uh, bring people back into the profession. So what kind of impact Andrew then is that having on dentist offices so if somebody calls to make an appointment what is going on? 
So it depends on the office because some offices have had full, full staff forever and they're they're solid and their people have come back. But we are hearing that some offices have had to reduce their hours um, have had to to maybe cut a day or two days out of their schedule that it's very hard for them to um, have staff enough staff that's appropriate. We also know that some offices have had to go to temporary staffing, and that's not necessarily the best solution either, as you can imagine. It's someone who's new to the office and doesn't necessarily have an understanding of how the office works. So, yeah, we are hearing from patients that they have been impacted. They're having a hard time uh, getting an appointment in and um and honestly, it, there's there's not much a, an office can do if they're shorthanded. They're shorthanded, right? Just, that seems like it seems like with so many businesses these days, right? You're just going to have to adjust, maybe fewer hours. But is this something that was foreseen, Andrea? Like, what, did we ever think we were going to have a shortage of dental hygienists or office assistants? You know, um, I think that somewhat these things go in waves in most of healthcare. So you'll have a time when there's a, sh- a shortage or a limited number of one profession. And then, and then we put in some, some things to improve that. And over time we build back and then it swings the other way and suddenly there are, there are not enough jobs. So it's not an unusual thing to have fluctuation for both dental hygienists and CDAs. The thing that wasn't foreseen was the impact of the pandemic. And it's very different than a lot of healthcare. These are not, these are private businesses so it was certainly uh, excruciatingly painful for a lot of them when they had to shut down. You're still paying overhead. You're still trying to keep your staff. But at the same time, there was three months or so where they just couldn't work at all. There was a lot of fear of people coming back to see the dentist after COVID because while you can, you know, if you, if you break your foot, you can probably see your doctor while you're both wearing a mask, but you really can't see a dentist or a dental hygienist or a CDA without, with a mask on your face. It doesn't work. So there's been there's been a lot of challenges. So I think the pandemic has just rolled this this uh, stone down the hill so much faster, and we haven't had the opportunity to mitigate it, to really think through those those processes that can fix it. Because unlike normal times when you have time to think about it, we were all so focused on getting ourselves through the pandemic and getting everyone back to work and safely back to work in an office that was you know adequate PPE and was was living up to the infection prevention controls that I don't think, I guess, I guess I would say stuff that we didn't necessarily couldn't have seen it coming, but it just sort of all has come up a lot faster and, and it's worrisome actually how quickly everything sort of has gone south. It certainly sounds like it. So Andrew, where can people get more information if they hear this and think, Oh, maybe I want to be a dental hygienist. Where can they find out more? Hey, our website, you can come to, uh, bcdha.com. We have information about both uh, dental hygiene and certified dental assisting. Uh, and you can call us, you can email us, we will do everything we can to help. And I think what you will see uh, is that we will be working with the BC Dental Association as well as our organization to really come up with some campaigns and strategies. If you're a CDA or a dental hygienist who's left the profession, we would love to have you come back. Uh, so give that some thought, but also what can we do to recruit out of high school and some, because it, it's a good profession. Both are good professions, good career opportunities. So we would love to see more people coming forward and wanting to be CDAs and dental hygienists. I love the way you're trying to lure people back into this, right? Anything you oh, can God. do. Yeah. <laughs> Those, so is, uh, so go call the website then. And by the way, how long does it take to become a dental hygienist? 
So a dental hygienist is a two-year diploma program, or there is a program at UBC, which is four years, and you you get a degree. Um, and a, dent, a certified dental assistant is about 10 months. All right. Sounds good. Andrea, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Appreciate that. That is Andrea Burton, the CEO of the BC Dental Hygienists Association, talking about the shortage, yes, even in the dental industry. If you've been trying to make a dentist appointment, maybe, or called up your dentist and you thought, what, I have to wait that long to have a dental appointment? This is why, is that many of the dental offices have quite a shortage right now in terms of dental assistants, uh, dental hygienists, and they need more people to get into that industry.